Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now from the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago and CNN Audio, The Axe Files. With your host, David Axelrod. Mick Mulvaney knows a lot about the central players in the Republican nominating drama. After all, Mulvaney served as budget director and acting chief of staff for President Donald Trump. He served in Congress with Ron DeSantis, where they were co-founders of the House Freedom Caucus. And as a South Carolina legislator, he sat next to State Representative Nikki Haley. I sat down a few days ago with Mulvaney a Winter Fellow at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics, to talk about the state of play in the Republican race and his own journey. Here's that conversation. Mick Mulvaney, it is really good to see you. I'm thrilled that you're going to be a fellow at the University of Chicago's Institute of Politics uh, this year and look look forward to that. But thank you for, thank you for sitting down. No, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it, and to being in Chicago in the in the uh, in the winter time. I've heard yes. it's lovely there. Yes, exactly, exactly. Well, I I know because I saw a promo for your appearance that you already have a heavy parka, so uh, you'll uh, I think you'll do well there. So. And that's the stuff that the um, the armed forces use for Arctic duty, and I'm not making that up. <laughs> so you're you're fortified. That's good. That's good. Tell me a little bit about your own story. There's plenty to time. I want to talk to you about what's going on right now because you have, among other things, a unique perspective of having worked closely with all three of the surviving major candidates for president on the Republican side. But but before we get to all of that, tell me about the Mulvaney's. How did the Mulvaney's get here and how did they get down south? Yeah, I'm not sure it's particularly interesting. The family is from the Twin Cities, actually, which is why I don't have an accent. But my mom was. How'd you get away with that, by the way, in South Carolina politics? Yeah, it was worse. It's worse than that, David. Actually, I'm Roman Catholic. Um, <laughs> so, um, and there was a Presbyterian church across the street from my house, and um, th- they go to they go to uh, Sunday school every Wednesday. I know that's a misnomer, but they go to Sunday school every Wednesday. And when I very very first ran for office for state legislature in 2006, um, the classes taught at the church across the street from my house in October of 2006 were non-Christian faiths, Judaism, Buddhism, Islam, and Catholicism. <laughs> that, that, that was the lecture series uh, before, I, before my very first election. So no, we, the, the rumor about the family is that my, my, my parents lived in the Twin Cities, and for some reason they were driving to Florida for one of my dad's conferences when my mom was pregnant with me, and they got out of the car around Charlotte, North Carolina in February, and it was 75. And my mom turned to my dad and said, you can go back to Minneapolis if you want, but I'm staying here. <laughs> and so um, back in those days, so people just up and moved and moved to new towns and found jobs, and that's how we ended up down there. But speaking of moving, go back even further. I'm talking about how did the Mulvaney's get to, you're originally from Ireland. 
Yeah, actually, actually, the, the dirty little secrets are more Polish than anything else. So my mom is the is a hundred percent Polish. So my dad's folks came over about five or six generations ago. We're not really sure where from in Ireland. It was a famine town, and the records were not that good. But my mom's family came over. Um, we don't know for sure if my grandmother was born in Poland or born in Chicago, but it was really close. And then she was orphaned at about two. Um, her mother was hit by a train in downtown Chicago, oh. believe it or not. And she ended up growing up in an orphanage. Oh, wow. I don't know that much about the family. Half, half Irish, half Polish. You would have been a good politician in Chicago. That's a, there you go. That's a winning combo there. Oh, You'll, but David, I'm a conservative. We can't, we can't have, we can't have those in Chicago. You know what? Well, f- first of all, there are some closet conservatives there, but secondly, it could have been that we could have worked on you wow. and straightened, straightened you out and put you on the. I right do very much there. believe that God makes everybody different, and some people are just—it's <laughs> in their DNA to be more conservative, and some it's more to be more liberal. I have triplets. I have twenty-four-year-old triplets, um, <laughs> and it's been a fascinating exper- uh, experiment in nature versus nurture. Because here are three children who were raised exactly the same way at exactly the same time, and they are three very, very different personalities. I have a, a hardcore liberal, a hardcore conservative, and one right down the middle. So. Yeah, it sounds like a cable TV station. You can, uh, <laughs> you uh, wound up in the South in Charlotte, uh, and you know I read a little bit about your childhood, and it seems like sort of the idyllic childhood. Your father was a successful home builder in Charlotte. Tell me what it was like growing up in Charlotte, and what your childhood was like, and was politics part of it then? Until late in life, I have no idea what political persuasion my parents are or were. My dad, late in his life, became more and more conservative as he got older and you know, was um, to the point where the Fox News um, logo was burnt into the, to his television screen because he just left it on all of the time when he moved to Florida. Um, but we, 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 we talked a little bit about policy, but not much about politics. We were home builders. My da- my, both my parents were school teachers. And the reason when we moved to Charlotte, my dad found a job in the real estate business for a company that was building houses. And that's how he got into the industry. We were in that industry for, for a long time after that. My grandfather had actually been a, a home builder uh, as well in Minneapolis. Um, so we knew about policy because when you're 10 years old and it's Christmas and your dad builds houses for a living and interest rates are 18%, the, 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 the correlate, the, the, the causative connection between interest rates and what you get for Christmas gets very personal very, very quickly. So you understand what inflation does and you understand what, what high uh, interest rates do when you're trying to sell houses for a living. So we, we were aware of politics, um, but we didn't discuss it much. We, we mostly focused on selling houses, I guess, is what it came down to. We lived in a in what I used to describe as the, the, the Cosby household. My parents were happily married. They fought every now and then, but not much. Um, you know, they got married. They stay married. My mom stayed home and raised the kids. My dad worked, um, and uh, we have, we we had a really really good time. I'm close with my siblings. Um, is it is it a perfect family? No, not, no family is. You did real well in school. You went off to Georgetown. Yeah, back when I was a Catholic school. International economics. You, you must have been steeped in some politics in that town. Yeah, uh, you know, Georgia was a, was a great was a great place to be in the 1980s. Really was. It's, I'm sure it still is. My daughter graduated there a couple years back. Uh, school has changed uh, a good bit, but it's still a fun place to go to school. And Washington is just a great town. It was a lot of fun. I used to 
take the bus or the subway a couple times a day down to work for my congressman back in the days when I wasn't really sure which was a Democrat, which was a Republican. All I was doing is, you know, writing letters to constituents and sending them flags. Um, so it was fun. It was a great place to go to school. Um, my, uh, teachers included, um, uh, Madeline Albright was my government teacher. Great character. We just ran a podcast over the holidays that I did with her in 2017. And what a fascinating person she was. She really was. It was, it was, a, it was looking back on it. It was one of my favorite classes. And, and I wish now that I could take the class again. Of course, she's gone and you don't get a chance to do that. But it's a classic example of youth being wasted on the young. The thesis was that America was a unique accident you know, in all the positive sort of ways. That by virtue of when it happened, where it happened, and who it happened with, it was its own thing. And you couldn't recreate it. You could, not, you could not start from scratch again like we did. And if you did start a country from scratch today, what would it look like? Because it wouldn't look like this. So we studied a bunch of new countries. Um, of course, uh, did a lot in, with Czechoslovakia, where she was from. Yeah, and she must have had, she probably brought the perspective of a, of a, ref, of a refugee. It was a wonderful class. And even though she and I did not see eye to eye politically later in life, had a great deal of respect for her. I would bump into her every now and then at the Aspen Institute. I'd say, hello, professor. And she goes, hello, Mickey. And that was the end of the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> and at the same, so at the same time as you were uh, absorbing the lessons of Madeleine Albright, apparently you were absorbing the lessons of Rush Limbaugh as well. Is that right? He, he apparently was a big influence on you. I'm not sure it was a big influence, but he was, I, I was on the cutting edge of it. He just started out in the mid-80s. Um, and he was on a, on a station back home. And my dad said, you know, you should listen to this. And I'm like, uh, what am I going to do? Am I going to listen to radio all the time? And then I got a job. My, my job in college, I was a security guard at Georgetown University. And so, you know, back in those days, we you didn't have the internet. Um, you know, you had a tape player maybe if you wanted to listen to music, but you had the radio. And that's what you took, took to work was the radio. And I listened to him a, um, a couple of times and, and enjoyed it. And in fact, later in life, um, I had a chance to discuss that with him, which was fascinating. I actually called in the show when I was a young lawyer and Madeleine Albright had just been nominated for um, Secretary of State. And the debate that day was whether or not having a woman as a Secretary of State would be a disadvantage to the United States because how women are perceived, especially uh, you know, in, in, say, places like the Mideast. And I, would, I called up. And talked to the programmer and said, look, she's a fabulously talented person. It's not going to be a problem at all that she's a woman. The problem is going to be that she's, she's you know, she leans socialist. And they, they will put me in the queue to take my call and they ran out of time. Well, you so said the magic word there. Yeah, socialist. That's exactly right. So you became a young lawyer. You worked in your father's business for a while. You ended up moving across the border to South Carolina. Why? taxes mostly um and my family had been I, i've been practicing i was a real lawyer for about seven or eight years and then i started my own practice and i had a couple of clients and my dad's business was one and it got to be very very large uh, and then we sold that company but we sold that company the same weekend my triplets were born that was a busy weekend yeah I'll um, say. i was i was the lawyer for the for the family selling the family business um, but we kept some real estate holdings. We sold the home building business, but kept some, some real estate that we owned. And that turned into a separate business. And my dad had asked me to come work for him for years and years. And I told him no and told him no and told him no. Then I knew he was getting older and the business was smaller. So I started doing more real estate. And we owned a bunch of real estate in South Carolina. 
started going to the county council meetings in this little tiny county in South Carolina. The population of the whole county back then was probably up 40 or 50,000 people. Um, but we had major investments. And I, I went every single Monday to county council meetings to see you know, what they wanted to do with real estate development and so forth and water and sewer. And that's when I really started getting involved in politics for real. Um, and I love the place, David. The place was all Southern Democrats. 100%. The, the, the city council was 100% Democrat. Every single elected official was a Democrat, um, but they were all conservative Southern Democrats. This is back in, say, yes. 98, um, back right. when that party still existed. And uh, it was a fact. I grew up as a Southern Democrat, probably, um, you know, because that's that. And that's people say, oh, you can't believe you were a Democrat. But a Southern Democrat was probably closer to today's Republicans than they were. If you grew up, you know, a, a devout Catholic, Democrat, you were pro-life. I mean, that was that was just so that that wing of that party doesn't exist. And, and that led you to run for office, and you ran for the legislature. Yeah, the only time I ever had anybody ask me for a bribe was when I was down in my county. I had moved down there. I was down there for two years, and I knew all the county council. But I had a big piece of property come up rezoning, and I had a guy walk up and say he, that he was going to have to have fifty thousand dollars to vote for me for for this uh, for this uh, rezoning. And I told him that uh, I already had the votes on the council to get the votings, and I'd be more than happy to go in and tell council in public what he just told me privately. Um, and he he quietly abstained from voting and didn't vote. Um, about six months later, he called me and asked me for a, co a contribution because he said he was going to run for the state legislature. And I said, well, you got to tell you, you know, I was actually thinking about running for that seat myself. And he goes, oh, oh, okay. Well, and then he hung up the phone. I told my wife I had to run for state legislature. So you hadn't been thinking about it until that guy called you? Correct. That's amazing. And one became the first Republican ever elected to the state legislature from that. So district. what made you run as a Republican because that guy was a Democrat? You said you, you were a conservative Southern Democrat yourself, but you, you ran as a Republican. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good question. Could I have run as a Democrat? By then, David, may, maybe I was more conservative then and I had gone over it. By, and, and, and by then, the, the party... Parties were starting to change a little bit. It was harder and harder to be pro-life as Democrat. There was still some, but I, I guess I associated more by that time. I was what forty by that time, maybe. I was more associated with the Republican Party. Again, I, I hadn't been politically active for a long, for a long time. I worked for a Republican congressman when I was in college, but that was really um, the only political activity I had outside of my, you know, the work I did for local associations and stuff. So you won by a, a slim margin. Yeah. 200 odd votes. You went to the legislature, and there are a couple of things I wanted to ask you about your time in the legislature, which wasn't all that lengthy. But what is you worked on a bill like a, a bill that would require doctors to offer ultrasound, ultrasounds yeah. of, yeah. Uh, of, of for, to pregnant women who wanted an abortion, presumably to try and urge them to other alternatives. And that's urge is the right is the right word. I, I, I was thinking about it, and maybe this is why I ran as a Republican. I always considered myself a lot more libertarian than anything else. Mm -hmm. And I tried to approach abortion from a libertarian perspective, um, respecting the rights of, of of everybody involved, but also being Roman Catholic, respecting the 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 the, uh, the fetus as a, as an individual with rights and so forth. And so. There were folks in my state who wanted to just ban it outright. Of course, at that time, you couldn't do that because of right. Roe anyway. But um, I said, look, if it's going to be a choice, let's make it an informed choice. Let's say, fine, okay, if you're going to make a choice to do X, Y, Z, 
why not have as much information as you can available to you? I was, in, I was influenced this by my wife who grew up as a Democrat, became more conservative. She got older. She said, you know, when she was younger, she was always taught that um, an embryo was a lifeless mass of cells. And then when we had our triplets in 2000, we've got pictures of our children when they are eight cells, um, eight, eight, eight cells. Um, and so as technology changed, information had changed, the information available to women about what an abortion constitute had changed. And I thought it was at least intellectually um, and morally defensible to say, okay, you have the right to an abortion. I get that, but we want you to have as much information as you possibly can about it. I get that. And I understand the libertarianism. And But your state now does have a ban. Yeah. It's a six-week ban. There have been many of those around the country uh, since the Dobbs ruling, since Roe was overturned. What, what is your feeling about that? What, because it doesn't square with libertarianism particularly. You can square it if you consider the embryo to be the individual, right? And if, as a Catholic, if you believe life begins at conception, then your right to life begins at conception. So that, that's, maybe, you know, that's, that's, that I don't have a difficulty with. The, the challenge I think that my party faces on abortion is that it's at the federal level, which we spent 50 years telling people that Roe was wrong because it has the federal government, the Supreme Court was wrong in Roe and to create a federal right to an abortion. It was always something that had been uh, handled by the states up until that point. Um, and in fact, to this day, we've never passed a federal abortion law. I don't, I don't think um, that all, it all came out of Roe. Um, but now my party's starting to talk about, okay, now we need federal protection or federal, you know, we need a federal law to make sure that it's okay for states to, to ban abortions after a certain period of time. And that's, that's really tough for us intellectually. For me, it's a problem that you've made 50 years arguing it's not the federal government's business and now you want it to be the federal government's business again. I don't like that at all. What did you think about the situation in Texas, for example, where that mom had a child who was doomed and the carrying that child was threatening her own health, her ability to carry a child, and she had to leave the state? Yeah, I, 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 don't, I, really, I don't have a problem with it. Uh, I, I don't have a problem with banning it outright. I don't think it's right to do that at the federal level. Um, and I've got too many stories about people who thought the baby was going to, to, to have severe disabilities or was, uh, oh, what's, I can't remember whether it's a buddy of mine in the state said it. I can't remember that it's, a, it's an ectotopic pregnancy or something mm -hmm. like that. Uh, and the doctors encouraged his wife to have an abortion 30 years ago. And the kid's now fine. Um, so we've all got stories like that. I don't have a difficulty with what Ohio has done, what Nebraska did, to put it on the referendum and to guarantee those rights in the state constitutions to abortions. I think that's the way the process is supposed to work. The American experiment is supposed to work like that. And if Texas wants to do one thing and Nebraska wants to do another, that's, that's, we, we, we've done that for two, very successfully for 240 years. I have no difficulty with it. I don't have a problem with California um, having uh, almost no limitations on abortion. I don't want to belabor this, but should a woman like that uh, young woman in that mom in Texas have to leave the state? And what if you don't have the resources to do that, to go and find uh, the medical services that you need? I look at it as to there's a child, there's a living person, right, who is entitled to certain protections. Does is, is Texas taking the steps that they deem necessary using the, the political process, the, the democratic process to arrive at certain ways to protect that individual, is that legitimate? I believe that it is. 
if it has these unintended consequences that you described, that, that happens all the time when you pass law. And again, different states handle it differently. No, I understand the position. I, I understand your position on it. I just... Uh, you disagree with it. <laughs> I, I, do, I do disagree with it. Yeah. Be, you know, and I don't think it's an easy issue, and I've never believed it was an easy issue. Yeah. And I, by the way, I'm the parent of an adult child with disabilities, and I, so I, I don't think it's an easy question, but I do think that I, I don't believe that Mothers, mothers are uncaring. Parents are uncaring. Because I did sit next to Nikki Haley for two years in the legislature, but she was here for this debate. When we were debating uh, another abortion bill, it was a ban. I had a, a Democrat friend of mine get up and, and talk about you know the exceptions. You know, what do you want to do about exceptions? What do you do about you know the, the Texas example that you just gave? And I stood up and I said, "Look, I'll make you a deal. I will back every single amendment you have on exceptions if you thereafter support the bill." And he sat down, and my, and I'll never, I'll never forget that because it, 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 what struck me is that it is such a hard issue, but there are people who want to keep it alive on both sides because it has political value to both sides. Listen, there are folks in the pro-life movement who don't know how to handle themselves now that we won on on Roe um, because the political issue has gone away at the federal level. There's Democrats who want to keep this alive and want to use these exceptions, uh, these very, very rare exceptions. I think that the, that it is an anguishing decision, and I think most women treat it as a, as an anguishing decision and make that decision in concert with their doctors and their spiritual counselors and their families and so on. But you know, you talk about these rare exceptions. I don't know that these exceptions are as rare as uh, late term abortions, which are held up by opponents of yeah, abortion fair. rights as uh, you know some sort of dominant occurrence or, or frequent occurrence, which they are not. It's, they represent, I think, less than 1% of all abortions. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Feeling overwhelmed with the constant flow of headlines and trying to keep up with the latest twist of this election year? Take a deep breath and turn on Crooked Media's What A Day podcast. In just 20 short minutes, What A Day, hosted by me, Juanita Tolliver, and my co-hosts, Trey Bell Anderson, Josie Duffy Rice, and Priyanka Arabindi, breaks down the biggest news stories into bite-sized pieces that don't make you want to cry. And the best part is, we do it every day. So start your day off right with What A Day, available wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And now, back to the show. 
But anyway, let's talk about Nikki Haley because sure. uh, I mentioned at the top that you were you you know a lot about a lot of these people who are running. Tell me about her and your experience with her. So I sat right next to her for for two years uh, on the state floor. We worked together. She was I think she got elected in two thousand four. Uh, like me, one of the, the sort of the next generation uh, younger at the time, fiscally conservative um, sort of uh, uh, Republicans. Uh, as opposed to sort of the the good old boy Republicans that we had in the South. Of course, we had good old boy Democrats as well. We were both pretty solid devotees of Mark Sanford. Mark actually was the was the governor who um, encouraged me to run when I first started thinking about running against that guy that I, I mentioned to you. So we were sort of that that Mark Sanford esque sort of cadre of of young, fiscally conservative Republicans coming down to try and lower spending, lower taxes, et cetera. She's plainly very skilled politically. I mean, she's a good political uh, performer. She's quick on her feet. She's appealing. But the rap that has traveled with her over the years is that she's pretty opportunistic and that her positions are not fixed. Uh, She campaigned twice against taking the Confederate flag down from the Capitol. Yeah. And then ended up uh, after the slayings and Charleston taking the advocating for taking the flag down. And you had this weird thing this past week in, um, or the past couple of weeks in New Hampshire, where she was asked about what the cause of the Civil War was and omitted slavery uh, as the cause, which has become weirdly an issue in your party. Like, we don't want, you know, why are we revisiting this? We're teaching our kids to hate America and so on. What is that? What is is that a uh, is that a thing? Is that real? You've asked two different questions. Uh, I, no, I, I do not think the Republican Party is out trying to teach kids that the Civil War was not about slavery. That's not. That's well, why'd she answer that way? I, I, you know, David, I, I I wish, and I haven't talked to her about it. What I wish you'd said is is a legitimate answer, which is, hey, you know what? I've been doing this for sixteen hours a day for the last five or six days, and I just blew it. Of course, the Civil War is about slavery, and I should have said that right away. Were there other things involved or the things that were attached to slavery? Yeah, but I absolutely should have said it right away, and I didn't, and I'm sorry. What she said, though, was, uh, that, was that it was a Democratic plant, and oh, yeah, it was that's about freedom. And- yeah, the Democrat plant, and the, the point of that is, and I mentioned this in News Nation the other night, okay, so what's a Democrat plant? You want to be president of the United right. States, you're going to face bigger challenges in life than a Democrat plant. At a uh, at one of your town hall meetings, people make mistakes all the time. When you talk for a living, you're going to say the wrong thing from time to time, and I don't think people hold that against you. Um, we could have a longer conversation, but I don't think that's what this is no, about. No, 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 no. But my question to you is just: Are those characteristics of her, or or do you just think that was a the the function of of weariness? I, I think that's a function of, of of overthinking things and being and being tired. Um, we used to, when I used to campaign, one of the things we used to pray for at night was a good night rest because you make mistakes when you're tired. Uh, you just do. The overthinking thing is a separate issue, though. That's probably a fair criticism. At the same time, she's probably not the only politician who's ever been accused of that. I've had people say, you know, she's ambitious. I'm like, show me somebody who's running for president who is not. Yeah, although, uh, no, that's true. Although, you know, authenticity. Is kind of the coin of the realm when you're running for president. Even Trump, nobody ever says, "Gee, I wish Donald Trump would speak his mind." That's not. That's not. You can say lots of things about uh, about Trump, and and yeah. so you know, I I wonder if this becomes a barrier uh, because if you try and slice the salami too thin in a presidential race, you get exposed for that. 
yes, I think that's a fair point. Let, let's let's take a more hopeful look on uh, on the American electorate, though. Is that one of the reasons I love Iowa? The the voters there can see that, right? I mean, that's the beauty about Iowa. Great yes. thing about Iowa is it's small, it's cheap. You don't have to have a lot of money. You should have a lot of time and a lot of energy. And right, the- it's the one place in the it's the one place in the calendar, New Hampshire to a lesser degree, where actual people get to spend real time with Correct. candidates. No, I love it. I'm a big defender of these small states. My point is, I have I have confidence they'll if, if Nikki Haley is too contrived, Nikki Haley is too managed if she's if she's too, too if she calculating things too much yeah. calculating won't the voters of iowa see that i mean we'll see on yeah. uh, the 15th of uh, january but let's say she does uh, reasonably well there and, and does very well in new hampshire where she seems yeah. to be doing uh, better and where independent voters can vote then it comes to your home state of south carolina yeah tell yeah. me about what a donald trump nikki haley race uh looks like in south carolina 70 30 trump yeah, that's why I say Ron DeSantis, I think, is making the right decision of putting all his, his, his eggs in Iowa. And if he comes out second Iowa, he's off to Super Tuesday because he can skip South Carolina because no one expects him to do well. But I think Nikki is expected to do well in her home state. And I think I, I think there's a real risk there that she gets beat badly, even in a two person race. It might be 70, 30, 60, 40, 60, 40. Is that a win? If you're if it's your home state, I, I don't know the answer to that question. Ken, she's not spent a lot of time there recently, but clearly we know who she is. We also know who Donald Trump is. Um, but I, I, I think people who are looking at, at, at Nikki's possibly winning South Carolina, I've not seen any polling data today that uh, I don't know how much there is in South Carolina. Um, but I, I don't see Nikki Haley winning uh, South Carolina. And I think that is a problem for her. Uh, it's a problem for anybody. That would probably end the race. If she wins New Hampshire, it's a different story. I don't think she's going to win New Hampshire. Uh, it doesn't hurt. It does. Let, let's put it this way. Let's agree on this. It does not help you as a politician to lose your home state in a national election. And we should point out, and this will become clear. It's not like you're a, uh, you're not a promoter of the Trump candidacy. No, no, I'm not on anybody's team or the Republican nomination. I'm good friends with with everybody who's running against Trump, and I've worked with Trump. I don't consider Trump to be a friend, by the way. He'd probably say the same. Uh, it's not the job of the chief of staff, David. You know that. Um, if you, if you, if your chief of staff who wants to be friends with the president probably ends up, you know, yeah. uh, like Mark Meadows, you moved on to Congress. You were part of, uh, a tea party group that got elected in 2010. I remember it very well. I still have the tire tracks on my back from the 2010, uh, congressional elections. Uh, and you were one of these, the young sort of conservative firebrands that came to Congress. Uh, two years later, Ron DeSantis came along, uh, and you and he were part of the sort of foundational group of the Freedom Caucus in uh, the House with Mark Meadows and others. Um, tell me about DeSantis and the at what he what he was like then and what he's like now and what how he's campaigning now. And another great example of of of, of what Iowa and New Hampshire voters you know are looking for. Ron is exactly. The criticism of Ron is that he's he's stiff and he's hard to sort of he, he doesn't he, he can't sit around a dinner table and talk to folks and that's accurate okay he's extraordinarily bright um, he's 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 I I think he's done a really really good job as a Florida governor he's earned the right to be considered he's he's a successful governor of a large state which is how both parties used to sort of vet people 
for for Congress. That's obviously changing now. It's changed with Barack Obama. But well, Obama was the first senator since Kennedy to get elected, right? Right. I, I think, and he was the first one since Warren Harding. So, so I mean, we used governors. Ron has earned his place in this conversation. He and I get along well because I know him well and we're friendly with each other. We can talk about golf, but it takes a long time to get there with Ron. And it, he doesn't have that instant connection with people. Yeah, and Iowa really requires the ability to do that. Bill Clinton has it has 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 that special magic ability that that some politicians have to walk into a room to meet somebody and they make and he makes them feel like they're the only person in the room. He's always been friends with them. He's always been friends with them. I haven't got that. I don't know if you have got it, but I certainly know that Ron DeSantis doesn't have it either. It's also interesting to me because he won a big landslide victory in Florida in 2022, uh-huh. and he was the thing. He was the guy. He was the next, the the hope that the, to get beyond the Trump era, he was the, and uh, obviously made a political calculation that to win in Iowa, you needed to be a uh, luminescent social conservative uh and run pretty far to the right my sense of him in the house and you read his first book was that he was a sort of small government libertarian uh that's how he presented himself a little bit like you present yourself yeah Uh, but the thing that the things that he's leading that he's led with for a lot of this campaign were about uh social issues and uh uh, some of the positions that he took. I mean, that's where the base is. Now, I don't, I don't think that's contrived. I think, I think Ron is a social conservative, I, I, just like Ronald Reagan was. But Ronald Reagan is not remembered for his social conservatism. He's remembered for his, his, his strong positions on defense and his libertarian leading uh, republicanism. Do you think, Mick, that the that his uh, going after Disney in Florida was a conservative position? Um, I, you know, I can see both sides of it. I, I defend the position because I also, because I know just because of what I used to do for a living, I know the benefits that are conferred on private corporations by the type of deal that Disney got back in the 1960s. And I think Ron's attitude was, Hey, look, if you guys want to play in politics, that's fine. But you know, if you're going to get involved in, in this, in this business, you're not, we're not going to let you take advantage of your status as a corporation and give you all these benefits. We're going to take away the benefits. But it's not a conservative position to say we're going to award and withdraw these rights based on whether you agree with the governor's position on a specific issue. That is not a conservative position. If you agree with me, you get stuff. If you don't agree with me, you don't get stuff. That's a populist attitude. And I absolutely get that. If the reason I say I can see it is like this was a benefit that a previous governor Back in the 60s, it said, okay, since you're coming into the state, we're going to give you this. Yes. Uh, and it's okay for a later governor to take it away. Um, I And yes, you could make the claim that Ron did because Disney disagreed with him. I It'd think be the- one thing if, he, if Disney, if he, if he said, this, was, this is a bad deal and the state has not benefited from Disney being in Florida. Yeah. I don't think anybody would make that argument. That's a stronger position to take than okay. You're involved. You you oppose me on this. We're going to take that away. I think it's you oppose me on a completely unrelated issue. Uh, yeah. Well. Yeah. The LGBT has nothing to do with the, the land management around. Kissimmee. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. But what is your forecast for DeSantis long term in this race? I, I think if he doesn't finish second in Iowa, he's finished. Uh, it looks like you know, Nikki's going to finish second. And I think there's two tickets out of Iowa, first and second. Two tickets out of New Hampshire, first and second, and that's it. Only anybody who finishes third, I mean, you're just too far. You're almost too far back at second place anyway. Um, so if DeSantis can get a second in Iowa, he'll go on and 
go to Michigan and Florida for Super Tuesday. Um, and if Nikki Haley uh, beats him in Iowa, he's probably done. Let me make a counter argument, which is, would it be better for Haley to finish a point or two behind DeSantis and give him the impetus to go on to New Hampshire? Because at the end of the day, his votes are maybe more likely, the majority of his votes are more likely to go to Trump than to her in New Hampshire. Well, I think that's fair. I think she, but he's polling so low in New Hampshire. The better question is Chris Christie in New Hampshire. If Chris Christie somehow were to get out of the race, which I don't think he would, most of his votes are going to Nikki Haley, not to, uh, but all of Avek Ramaswamy's votes are going to Donald Trump. Most of, you know, most of the, the, the DeSantis vote is going to Trump. So um, that, that's the real question is that how big is the anti-Trump movement? Is, yes. it, is, it, is it 58% or is it 38%? And right now, I think it's 38%. Yeah, I mean, this has been the fault all along, which is that um, there has been this sense that, well, if people unified around one candidate, that that candidate could beat Trump. That's not really true if you're sitting there at 60% of the primary yeah. electorate. I, I, that's, and that's one of the things that stunned me. I, I thought from the very beginning that Trump could lose in a head-to-head -head race, but would be unbeatable in a multi-person race. Now, I'm not sure he can be beat in a head-to-head -head race. I never thought his ceiling, David, was 62%, which is what I've seen in some national polls right now. Um, he, he's done a, one of the best natural politicians I've ever seen. Uh, and he's way outperformed what I thought he would be doing in this race. You and the Freedom Caucus were instrumental in shutting the government down in 2013 over the Affordable Care Act. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you've seen that as a tool uh, to use. Where do you think it's going now? We've, we've, you know, we have a few weeks to go before uh, the House is going to again confront a, uh, you know, a, a crisis over uh, over funding. Um, do you do you? What would you advise uh, Mike Johnson and the House Republicans now? Yeah, it would be different advice than I gave um, back when I was budget director in 2017, 2018, uh, because back then we controlled the House, the Senate, and the White House. Now Mike's got a what a three vote majority as of this morning in the House, and that's it. Is yes. guys. Take whatever you can get as a win. Seriously. Otherwise, you're going to get steamrolled. Any, any, anything that moves the ball in your direction is going to be a win. It's, it's stunning that you've been able to, to accomplish what little you have in the first place. I mean, that 1% across the board Massey amendment was, I thought was, although it's not enforceable, was a good, was a good place to sort of have a battle. If you can get some policy wins in the border, which I think Democrats are more and more interested in, in talking about now because the border is becoming a bipartisan issue. Anything is going to be a win when you've got a three-vote majority in the House. So um, you know, to, my, to my Freedom Caucus friends, and I've had this conversation with them, guys, wh where were you in 2017 and 18 when I was trying to convince the president not to sign these huge spending bills? Where was the Freedom Caucus then um, fighting for, for lower spending? So I mean, why are we doing this now when you don't have the levers of power? Um, you know, take, let's wake up. Let's get smart. Let's take w wins where you can find them because... Uh, you don't. You don't have a lot of leverage here. So don't walk the don't walk the country into a shutdown here. I think the, 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 inevitably there'll be some type of not inevitable. I shouldn't say that. It's possible that that happens. I, I, I honestly don't. Uh, I don't know. You you mentioned you became budget director. It's uh, explain to me how that happened because it may have been before you were appointed chief of staff. Some tape surfaced of you saying that Trump was a horrible human being yeah. back in 2016 which i don't know he seems to take these things personally 
that was the, he, we used to joke about that. He'd joke. He would, he would half joke about it. The tape was out. Everybody knew about the tape. I had a debate, David, um, in, in, uh, York County, South Carolina, the night that the Access Hollywood tape came out. And I got asked about the tape and I said, well, it sounds to me like Donald Trump is an absolutely horrible person. And I said that and Trump knew about it. He, he always sort of joked and then sort of didn't joke about it. He, he, re- listen, Donald Trump knows that people say bad things about him. Um, so he doesn't hold it against you forever. Um, but that was out. It wasn't really an issue uh, ever, I don't think, uh, when I served uh, in the White House. But yeah, it's certainly there. You obviously wanted to be budget director. This was yeah. your interest. You had been in, in the budget committee. Uh, what was the process of getting that job? And tell me what it was like to work with him as budget director. Getting a job was probably a function of my relationships with Paul Ryan, who was very close with Wrights Priebus, who was the first chief of staff. And my direct relationship with Mike Pence, who had been in the house um, with me. Um, and they both knew I was pretty good with numbers. I had some Democrat support for the position. I promised my Democrat friends I would never use their names publicly. But I actually had some Democrats on the budget committee reach out to the transition team and say, yeah, this guy actually knows his stuff. You should consider him. And I think that weighed fairly heavily with the Trump transition team, who was not all Republicans. Um, you know, Donald Trump has been a Democrat as much as he's been a Republican in his past, and certain members of his transition team were Democrats, including his family. Um, so that that had some some weight. Working for him was fascinating. Um, you know, I get asked all the time, "Is Donald Trump smart or is he stupid?" And my answer has always been, "How much Donald Trump engages on an issue and retains uh, information about an issue depends almost entirely on how much he cares about an issue." And if he cares about something, he cares about it a lot. If he doesn't care about it, he doesn't care about it at all. Uh, and I remember one time walking in, we, when you do the budget, you have, we had a, a list of what we called sensitive cuts. And these are cuts, regardless of the amount of money, we knew they would be politically sensitive. And I'd go in one week and say, Mr. President, here's a cut, here's a cut. Now, this is a cut, Mr. President. This is a foreign aid cut to a country that we're friends with. It's $16 million, which is not a lot of money, but here's why it is what it is and all this. He's like, okay, I'm good with that. I go back about eight weeks later, we're walking through the cuts, it's in this present, this again, this, oh, by the way, here now we've got a $15 million cut. I remember this on this, on this, uh, this foreign aid thing. It's, whoa, 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 whoa. It was $16 million last week, last time. What happened? Okay. So he was really good with numbers. He was really good with stuff he cared about. Um, if he didn't care, it, it was sometimes like beating your head up against the wall, trying to get him to engage on it. No, he was not stupid. Um, he's, he, uh, he just cares about what he cares about. He doesn't care about what he doesn't care about, if that makes any sense. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now back to the show. One of the reasons you wanted the job, one of the things that you called the hallmark of your political career was trying to deal with the debt. I'm sure it's why Ryan wanted to help promote you uh, there and deficits. It turns out that a quarter of the entire 
Oh, now, Federal David, you're not, gonna, you're, not pull, you're not going to pull that trope out, are no, you? No, 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 no. Take the $3 trillion out from the from the pandemic. So $5 okay. trillion. Dollars, and some of that, it's not a trope to say they that, were running. We were running them a trillion dollars a year. I think we're under a trillion in 17. They ran a trillion dollars after that. I mean, it was that wasn't that much different. Do you, than all- uh, do you speaking of tropes, do you believe that the big tax cut of uh, 2017 Paid for itself, yeah. uh, yes. Paid for itself. Um, I, 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 I think that it remains to be seen. It's never going to pay for itself in a year. The question is: Are you changing the growth arc of the country? Is the pie getting bigger than it otherwise would have been? And I do think that we had a great deal of growth because of that. I don't think it's possible. To, by the way, and you know as well as I do, these things get measured in ten-year windows anyway, right? When you score something at the uh, at the Congressional Budget Office, you have to look at it. Over 10 years. That being said, Gresham Budget Office is really, really bad at judging things on a dynamic scoring basis. The budget office says if you raise the price of a, of a, of a hamburger by a dollar and you sold 100 hamburgers, you're going to make 100 more dollars. They don't take into consideration. In fact, you might sell 97 hamburgers because you've raised the price. They're, that's dynamic scoring and they're really, really bad at it. So I don't think that, I don't think that we'll know for a while as to whether or not those were successful in the long term. I will say this. I keep going back to the fact that even though Trump gets blamed for the budgets, and I blame him for signing the bills. There is no question about it. Okay, And I begged him not to sign the spending bills in 2017, 18, and 19. Um, Congress spends the money. They do. That, that's just as much an attack on my party because my party ran the Congress in 2017 or 18 and 19. Uh, but the other party is running it, running Congress the rest of the time, at least in the House Representative. Congress spends the money. Um, so if, again, I'm not trying to blame the Democrats for, for deficits here because both parties have gotten us $34 trillion in deficit. You don't get $34 trillion in deficit by having one party do it to the other. There was a report once, Mick, that Trump said when he was told, when someone said, hey, you're going to run some really big deficits here if you sign these bills and the tax cut and so on. And he said, hell, that's someone else's problem. We're not going to be here. Then. I don't remember that. I do remember other conversations with him about uh, running the printing press. Um, he, he, was, he, he knew, he, he, he sort of, he knew what got me, right? He knew what buds to push on me. And he's like, Nick, why don't we just run those presses? We'll run the presses, right? That's what we'll, we'll do that. And we Meaning did have a print conversation. Print money. Print money. One time we had a conversation about uh, uh, infrastructure. And he said, well, it looks like Nancy's going to be introducing a trillion-dollar infrastructure bill, Mr. President. He goes, well, okay, we'll do two. I mean, that was, yeah, he is not fiscally conservative. There's no question about that. And that is a fair criticism to say that Donald Trump, you know, by himself ran up a quarter of the, of, of the deficits that I, I consider that to be. Well, that's a, I mean, that's yeah. just, that's a fact there. You can argue the, the, he was, the, the he was president, of it. He was president during that period of time. Okay. Well, that's fine. That's Let's fine. let you became, you became chief of staff. Were you surprised to find yourself in that position? Why did you take it? No, um, it's and you know this as well as anybody. It's a it's sort of a natural progression. I don't know if I'm the sixth or eighth or whatever budget director to become chief of staff. That is a that's a natural progression within a West Wing, mostly because after the chief of staff, if a, if a, if a, if the White House is running properly, the budget director is probably with the president as much as anybody other than the chief of staff, um, because the budget the budget director is involved in so many things. So you have a lot of time. With the president, there's a comfort level. You learn how to work with each other, et cetera. What was the job like trying to manage Donald Trump? No, no, you don't manage Donald Trump. You manage the staff. 
you're not the you're not the you're not the chief of the president. You're chief of the staff. And the reason I took the job was I had been in the West Wing as a member of the as a director of the Office of Management Budget. It was running very very poorly. John Kelly did not like the president. Uh, John Kelly had not come to work for several months uh, towards the end of his tenure, and the morale in the building was really really low. And I had just finished a stint running the CFPB. President had sent me over there, sort of a turnaround um, a specialist on that place. He was very pleased that I said, Mick, can you come in and do for the West Wing what you did at the CFB, sort of turn the place around? Six month, that's why it's acting. You know, come in here on temporary and then you go back and do your budget thing. And that's that's how I took the job and why I took the job was to try and redirect the, the West Wing and the staff. There's a consumer financial uh, protection agency that was set up under the Obama administration. You you said you did a turnaround, but you you really were you wanted to sort of sideline the place. Well, we want to change the direction uh, of the place. And again, we don't have time to go into, but we wanted to yes. get them back to basics, to actually following the law. Our our, our perception was that they had taken a, an inch and turned it into a mile. They were abusing their their regulatory authority. And I wanted to change the direction to refocus it back on. You think they protection. were too hard on banks and financial institutions? I thought they violated the law. Just a couple of things about the Trump years. Yeah. One was uh, you were the chief of staff and this became a thing uh, during the whole uh, Ukraine episode, uh, yeah. the first Ukraine episode. And um, uh, the question, the real, the core question was Trump was asking for uh, Zelensky to open an investigation into the Bidens. At the same time, there was an issue of uh, aid that was uh, that the Ukrainians were um, were asking for, and that uh, was coming their way. And was that aid delayed? And I'm wondering um, whether you now were you chief at the time, or were you head of the? I was chief at the time. Yeah, did Trump ask you to let's let's slow that down for a bit? No, we did it for for an entirely different reason. And I know there's a press conference and I've been back and forth on this for John Carl, yes. John's a friend of mine. Ukraine is, and my fear, David, today we're going to find out that it's even more of a problem, one of the most corrupt places in the world. It is. There are special laws on the books of the United States on how money flows from the US to Ukraine because it is so corrupt. What people forget is the context. So at the time, Ukraine just had an election and we had a new, Zelensky was brand new. Um, but they don't elect their parliament at the same time they uh, elect their president. So it was un- while he was coming in as a reformer, it was unclear whether or not he was going to have the ability to do that. So we were waiting to see what direction Ukraine was going to take on dealing with things like corruption. People say, oh, you withheld the money. The money flowed. The money went at the time prescribed by law. Uh, there was never any violation of law in terms of when the money went to the Ukraine. Um, but I think that being good stewards of taxpayer money includes making sure that it's going to the right places for the right reasons. Um, that was why the Office of Management Budget held up the money, at least delayed the money, but not any time longer than it's allowed to do under law. Let me ask you a question. When you were chief of staff and they came to you, presumably they came to you with this conversation that the president had had with Zelensky what was your reaction to that, where he said, we want you to open up this investigation? I didn't know about the conversation with Zelensky until the tape was out. And what did you think when you heard it? The conversation was in July. 
the inquiry had begun before that. The, the, there had been an, a, an impeachment inquiry over the summertime. Again, they were always going to impeach Donald Trump. That was part of their campaign. Um, but the impeachment inquiry had begun. Um, I had never seen the transcript uh, of the conversation until after it had been released. I remember looking at it going, okay, this is, this is fine. I understand why the president says it's a perfect conversation. But from a political standpoint, I'm telling you, this is a problem. This language is a political problem. It's not a legal problem. This is a political problem. You say, you know, do us a favor, Mr. President. I, I, I get why your lawyers are telling you that's okay, but I'm telling you you're going to get impeached over this. Um, in fact, I left, Washington, I, left, I left New York that day. Um, uh, we were there for the United Nations General Assembly and, and jumped on a train to come back to D.C. to start to put together a, um, a, a war cabinet for the impeachment. The president calls me on the phone and says, where are you? I said, Mr. President, I got to go back to I got to back to D.C. You're going to get impeached over this. He's like, don't say that. That was his perfect conversation. Said, Mr. President, it may be the perfect legal conversation, but you are going to get impeached over this. And he had some derogatory comments and slammed down the phone. And 20 seconds later, Kevin McCarthy called me and said, where are you? I said, I'm on the train. He goes, you know, he's going to get impeached over this. I said, yeah, I think he knows that now. Um, so the, pol the the folks who knew Washington understood what was happening um but he, well, he, when you say it was a when he says it was a perfect conversation when you yeah. say just open an investigation and we'll take care of the rest uh or the republican members of congress will take i forget what the exact language was yeah but I it, don't. it sticks in my mind because it's sort of the same thing he said to the deputy attorney general you know in december of 2020 when he said just say the election was corrupt and we'll take care of the rest yeah that didn't raise your david i don't i don't remember that part of the transcript the part that i remember standing at online is do us a favor and as soon as you say that it's going to look like it's a problem keep in mind we had known for a long time about biden's conversations uh regarding the the attorneys in in, in ukraine and how, how awful that looked so we were aware of the the risks here it was that do us a favor language i remember i don't remember the specifics of the stuff you're talking about mm -hmm. I had Cassidy Hutchinson on this podcast a, a few weeks ago, and um, she described the uh, the president as um, I, I forget the exact words tempestuous, given to fits of anger and sometimes irrational. I saw him slam the table a couple of times, but I never saw him throw anything. I never saw him throw ketchup bottles again. So I never saw that. You left after a year. Yeah, fifteen months. Yeah. And what? How did that end? Well, um, it was fine. I got I got the job I wanted. I got a job in, as a, in the diplomatic corps. I was a special envoy to Northern Ireland. We knew it was a temporary posting. It was going to be six months, but it was going to be a year. At the end of the year, we were still in impeachment. And we talked about it's wrong to change chief of staffs when you're going through impeachment. So you went off to Northern Ireland. You quit on January 6th. I did. Tell me why. When my boss failed to live up to my expectations for my boss. And when you're in that circumstance, when you work in an organization, your boss does something that you don't approve of, and it's a serious matter, you can do a couple of things. You can either try and do something to fix it if you're in a position to do so. You can do nothing and have everybody assume that you support it, or you can leave. I was no longer in a position to do anything about it. No one was returning my calls anyway, but I was no longer chief of staff. I couldn't do anything to change what was happening. I was not going to stand by and have people assume that I approved of this. So the last choice to do that is to quit. I did not think at the time the president had done anything impeachable. I thought that he failed to live up to my expectations as one of his employees. During the January 6th committee hearings, 
there was information presented that I found credible that makes me wonder whether or not the president's actions that particular day were wrong and or criminal and or impeachable. So I have changed my, I, I, have, I have moderated my position on January 6th based upon the evidence that has come out. Um, and I hope that uh, other folks would do the same. If there's evidence that comes out tomorrow that completely exonerates Donald Trump, I hope that people can, um, that people will be able to change their minds based upon new information. What would a second Trump administration be like if he were elected? You'll expect a lot of the same from him. He's 80, you know, 78, 80, I can't remember how old he is now. You're not going to change him. The administration will be different in that it will be focusing a lot more on um, the minutia, the blocking, attacking, uh, tackling, and rubbing, running a government. That the, the attack on the deep state will be real, and it will be it will be concerted and well thought out and well conceived. I begged him to do civil service reform when I was OMB director and chief of staff. I was just flabbergasted when I went over to the CFBB that I couldn't fire anybody. Couldn't couldn't fire anybody. I mean, we had somebody who stole money and I couldn't fire them. So you That's approve wrong. of that idea? Absolutely. I, I, I believe uh, that the- Of turning more thousands and thousands of positions into political appointments rather than- The chief executive officer of the company should, of the country should have the ability to have the team that he wants working for him. I, I, I do agree with that, Democrat or Republican. You say, Mick, that the president won't change, but you said, I saw a quote from you where you said he, he was a different guy in the last eight months. The Trump that you'll see in the last- in the next four years is the Trump you saw in the last eight months. Keep in mind it when we started the first administration, the inner circle included the former CEO of uh, of ExxonMobil, the former president of Goldman Sachs. Right. At the end of the first term, it was a guy who sells pillows at night at Fox News. I think that's what you're going to get more of. Are there going to be some smart people? Yeah, there's a lot of smart people. I used to work with a lot of these folks. They're smart folks, but I don't think you're going to end up seeing the, the same caliber of people that you saw at the beginning of the first Trump administration. There's going to be some good candidates for sta- Secretary of State, you know, Secretary of Treasury. I have no clue who his attorney general is going to be, but it's not going to be somebody at Bill Barr's pedigree, that's for sure. And are you comfortable with that? Um, you know, there's a lot of folks that I wouldn't hire. Um, um, there's a lot of folks that I know and I have a great deal of faith in. Um, Russ Vogt used to work for me. I imagine you'd be chief, he could be chief of staff or budget director again. Mark Paoletta could be an excellent White House counsel. So there's some really, really good folks. I don't worry, like many of my Democrat friends do, about this threat to democracy. I, I just don't. I think that's hyperbole, and I think it's backfiring politically, especially. I don't think that any one person or any one administration can take down uh, the American democracy. So I don't worry about that. Is he going to run it the way that I would run it? Probably not, but I'm not worrying that the, the, the our Democrat Democratic Republic is going to end if Donald Trump wins. And I think that a, a, right now a slight majority of Americans agree with me because they're still supporting him for president. And if he's convicted in the January 6th trial or any of the others that, but uh, they're unlikely to go forward, would that change your thinking uh, as to whether or not he's a threat to democracy? No. If America elected a president who was convicted of conspiring to overturn a free and fair election. We, we, we get the government we deserve, right? If, that, if that's what the majority of the, of the country wants, and it's constitutional, and it is, um, then that's the government that we get. We've elected felons, by the way, David, all the time. You know, that is what, half a dozen felons in Congress right now. Yeah. And both, in both parties. I have faith in the American electorate, let's put it that way. But you have faith in Trump. To do what? To not, to not blow up the democracy? Yes, I have faith in Donald Trump to not blow up the democracy. 
and you have well, it sounds like you have faith in the democracy to insulate them it, itself from Trump is what you're really saying, as it did on January sixth. Mm-hmm. So I don't. I just, by the way, I honestly don't think he was trying to overthrow the government on January sixth. I know how the man thinks. He plays checkers, not chess. This was not part of a grand scheme. He was trying to delay the vote because they told him once they vote, it's over. He was trying to to delay things. Is that splitting hairs? Maybe it is. Um, but I don't think there's a master plan to turn Donald Trump into a uh, a dictatorial authoritarian tyrant. What about to punish? Uh, I mean, he. You see his two a.m. tweets, which are yeah. always something that you probably woke up worried about every day as chief of staff. As a conservative, I can't stand that. As a conservative, I I, I don't like the populism, Dave. I really don't. I, I populism in the long term can be dangerous. I agree with that. I, I that attitude. What about, about pure vengeance? That that's not conservative. That the institutions have to be Trump. By the way, I do think that the weaponization of the government is absolutely real. That's why I worry about the deep state and support what any Republican president would do to try and and get the bureaucracy back to serving both parties equally. That does not happen. And anybody who works in government, I will not anybody who works in government would tell you that government leans left. It absolutely does. Even the FBI, even the DOJ. And we need to fix that. There's a difference between fixing that and using that to get vengeance on your enemies. I think that just makes doing the latter thing just makes it worse. I don't want to live in a country where I have to worry about going to jail every time there's a Democrat uh, in, the, in the White House and you have to worry about going to jail every time that there's a Republican right. in the White House. That is a problem. Did you worry about going to jail when you were uh, in public office? No, no. It seems like if the president, presumably you think that it was there was something untoward about walking off with classified documents and not returning them when he was asked listen yes it's a it's absolutely a violation of law there's no question do you want to put a president in jail for that the question is do you want to make that person president that's a story that 300 million people are going to get a chance to right vote. exactly well i'm sure that you and i will have some great conversations about that over the next year and it'll be many of them local in chicago i hope i'm looking forward to it mick mulvaney thanks so much for spending the time with me i enjoyed it thanks david all the best happy new year okay happy new year to you as well thank you for listening to the axe files brought to you by the institute of politics at the university of chicago and cnn audio the executive producer of the show is miriam fender annenberg the show is also produced by Lena berry jeff fox and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Steve Lichtai and Haley Thomas. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.